Coming up, the gene editing technique that doesn't seem to actually edit genes. It's basically snowballing into a huge ball of scepticism now. And Pluto scientists figure out what that big white spot is with very little data. This is amazing. <laughs> I am so impressed. Plus, a study of mitochondrial replacement in human cells shows that some faulty DNA can stick around. This is the Nature Podcast for December the first, twenty sixteen. I'm Noah Baker, and I'm Adam Levy. Back in July 2015, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft sent back the most detailed images ever taken of Pluto, along with a wadge of juicy data. Much to the internet's delight, one of the surprises that came back was that dear little Pluto has a big heart, or rather, a large heart-shaped formation spanning around 1,000 kilometers of Pluto's surface. But that's less fun to say. This month, in a set of four papers published in Nature, scientists are getting to the bottom of what the heart actually is and what it might mean for everyone's favourite little dwarf planet. One intriguing theory is that it's a big bowl of nitrogen ice concealing a subsurface ocean. I called up Amy Barmlina from the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. She's written a news and views article about all the papers, and she started by telling me what scientists first thought they were looking at when they saw Pluto's heart. They had no idea. <laughs> I think I think the first reaction that people had was actually emotional. You know, the New Horizons mission had been on the chopping block for several times, and I think that people had a, sort of a latent fear that we would get to Pluto and it would be boring. And so, when they saw that feature on Pluto, they knew that they had found something interesting. They knew that Pluto had been active and that something had happened there. And I think everybody was thrilled. And now, with this data from New Horizons, scientists are actually getting to grips with what the heart is. Tell us, what, what is it made of? They think that the heart is a very, very thick deposit of nitrogen ice, and that nitrogen is material that's been、um, deposited from Pluto's atmosphere. And once that nitrogen deposition begins,、um, the weight of the nitrogen deposit begins to push down on Pluto's crust, creating a depression. And the nitrogen is also bright, meaning that it reflects a lot more sunlight, and so that region becomes colder. And so, creating a cold depression is a way to get more ice to actually deposit there. So, what happens is you end up creating sort of a feedback loop or a, a runaway process where the deposition of a little bit of nitrogen ice causes more and more ice to deposit there. And eventually, you know, you you sort of deplete the amount of nitrogen in the atmosphere, and you've made this giant.、Uh, Nitrogen deposit that's thought to be as thick as the depth of Earth's oceans, about four kilometers, and that has quite significant impacts on Pluto. The fact that there's this one lump of nitrogen ice on one side of Pluto. When you dump a whole bunch of stuff onto a planet,、um, the planet wants to kind of roll over. It wants to change the orientation of its spin axis so that it's in a low energy state again. Um, and so the deposition, the dumping of all of that frost onto the surface of Pluto caused Pluto to do the same thing. So it rolled itself over. And one consequence of Pluto rolling over is that the crust, Pluto's crust, will break because now the gravitational forces on Pluto are sort of pointing in different directions than they were before. And so you can create a network of faults all over Pluto, which has been observed. And that's what one of the papers is talking about. The other thing that's interesting is that. For the frost deposit to end up in its location, the the best way to make that happen 
is to have the, the frost deposit sort of thins the ice shell underneath and then allows Pluto's ocean to kind of rise up to fill that void. And so this work also, all of these papers also strongly suggest that Pluto has an ocean. That seems like a lot of calculations from not a huge amount of data. You know, is this an unprecedented thing to work out or is this just how planetary science works? This is amazing. (laughs) I am so impressed. You know, it's a great, beautiful, beautiful data set, but it's only data from a single flyby. And I think that what this work is showing us and what some of the other wonderful papers um, that have come out before are showing us is that, you know, planetary science has really, really advanced in a very, very serious way, even just in the last, you know, 15 or 20 years that I've been in the field. You know, what these papers are doing is they're taking lessons that we've learned about other planets um, and they're applying them to Pluto. And because we've learned so much about the surfaces and the interiors of other planets, that's allowed us to really get a good handle on what may be happening inside Pluto, even just from a limited data set. And what does this mean for planetary science? Does it tell us anything else about any other bodies in our solar system? Well, there are really only two icy bodies in the solar system that have an appreciable atmosphere. I would say Pluto is one of them and, you know, Saturn's moon Titan is the other. And what we've learned from looking at Pluto and Titan together is that, you know, a little bit of atmosphere goes a long way in modifying the surface. You know, that certainly, I would not have guessed that um, before the mission. That was Amy Barmlina from the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. To read her news and views or any of the four papers she's been brushing up on, head over to nature.com forward slash nature. Still to come in the research highlights, engineering cells to bind unfriendly elements and sensing gravity changes before an earthquake hits. But right now, if you've listened to the Nature podcast at all in the last couple of years, you've probably heard us talking about CRISPR-Cas9, the gene editing technique that's taken the biotechnology world by storm. But researchers are always on the lookout for alternative gene editors. Earlier this year, researchers in China reported they'd found a promising new option, named NGAGO. But it seems that promise has been short-lived. I called up Nature reporter David Sirinowski to find out why there was so much initial excitement about NGAGO. It was potentially uh, something that was supposed to, to, to solve the problems of CRISPR. It was going to be more efficient and it was going to have less off-target mutations. So people were very excited about it. You know, with some reservations, of course, you know, scientists are going to wait until they can reproduce it in their labs before they get too excited. And that's where the excitement started to dim because no one could reproduce it when, when they got around to trying it. So where are we now? Are people still working on it, still trying to reproduce the initial experiments? So there was a publication last week uh, with 20 authors, uh, basically a bunch of labs from around the world who had been trying to to reproduce it. And they were trying it in different kinds of cells, and and none of them had any luck. So a subset of those, I think eight labs, they said, we're going to try the initial experiment as he did it in China. And again, they had no luck doing it. It's basically snowballing into a huge um, ball of skepticism now. Thanks, David. We'll be back with you in one minute. But first, you mentioned the study that sums up a few different replication efforts. Well, there's been another study from a team in China that tried to make a specific edit in the genome of a zebrafish. They used NGAGO to try to edit a gene thought to be related to the fish's eye development. I spoke with one of the researchers, Yongming Wa, who explained to me what they saw. 
uh, if we knock down this gene, then we see the zebra fish with one eye. A pretty obvious change. A single eye where there should have been two. At first, the team were thrilled as it seemed like Ngago must have successfully edited the target gene. But then they looked at the zebrafish genome to see what change they'd made. But we did not see DNA mutations. No mutations in the DNA. Nothing to explain the changes they saw in the fish. It's possible that Ngago is modifying gene expression instead of editing the gene itself. This means that even if Ngago doesn't do the job of a gene editing CRISPR alternative, it could still be an important research tool. And Yong Myung says it's efficient and cheap to do. This is also very useful for the research. So, David, although that study does suggest Ngago could be useful, it is yet another study showing that it doesn't seem to work as a gene editing technique. Is there much hope left at this stage, or is pretty much everyone now cynical that it could do the job it was originally claimed to do? I think most of the scientific community is quite cynical, and they are, for the most part, giving up hope on it. So the, the number of people supporting the experiment are, are very few. The number of people still trying to do it, I think, is going to dwindle very quickly after this uh, after this recent report that was published uh, last week. So once you start getting that much weight, I, I think people will give up on it. Well, what does the the original re- researcher who proposed this as a technique make of all this? He's still standing by his results. He says it worked, and in my last interview with him, he said he thinks he's figured out why other people are having difficulty reproducing it. In fact, he had some trouble himself reproducing it with different cell types, and he he thinks he's he's found a trick now that's going to help people. But I think he's definitely in a corner, and he's going to have to come out with some pretty substantial evidence to to convince people. It sounds like, in some ways, the last chance for this technique is the the original author coming out and saying what he thinks has gone wrong with everyone else's experiments. Do we do we have a time for that? <laughs> time is probably uh, how how long he can stand the duress of people knocking at his door asking him what's going on. <laughs> he's under a lot of pressure, and I know he's in his lab, you know, working away at this, trying to trying to find an answer. Uh, so I, I imagine uh, with the with the pressure increasing as quickly as it is, he's he's going to come out with something in the not too distant future, or have to just say he gives up. There is a, a an odd twist to this, in that his university. Uh, after the news, it, it was, there was so much excitement about his, what, what he did uh, in China that his university decided to start a center on, uh, for gene editing at, um, basically based around him. And now they have a center going up, which is basically uh, you know, going to be built on a paper that no one believes in right now. That was Nature reporter David Cernoski. You also heard from researcher Yong Myung-wa, who's based at Fudan University in Shanghai. In the news, the results are in for a potential Alzheimer's treatment and the search for ancient Antarctic ice. But first, here's Kerry with the research highlights. Scientists have engineered cells to produce bonds between carbon and silicon. Silicon is everywhere in our world. There's tons of it in the Earth's crust. But life doesn't seem to like using it in chemical reactions. A team based in California took E. coli bacteria and plugged in a gene from a different bug that lives in Iceland's hot springs. When they fed the cells the right silicon-containing compounds, they bound carbon and silicon together. 
The find could help develop new drugs and hint at why life has shunned silicon. The paper appears in Science. Gravity signals could provide a little extra warning that an earthquake is about to hit. Earthquakes move a lot of rock around and so disrupt the Earth's gravity. It's just by a tiny amount, but researchers studying data from the 2011 quake in Japan found that extremely sensitive instruments can pick up the change. Crucially, the signals come a few seconds before the seismic waves hit, which might not seem like much, but experts suggest it would provide enough time to make emergency changes to infrastructure, like stopping trains or letting people out of elevators. More in Nature Communications. There's a class of genetic diseases, untreatable and often fatal, that are caused by faults in the cell's energy-generating structures. In the lab, it's possible to replace the faulty genes without replacing the rest of the genome. But is the technique ready for the clinic? Reporter Ewan Calloway has been looking at one study that checks out the health of human embryos cleansed of these mutations. Every human cell has two genomes, the well-known one with most of your genes and then another with a much smaller set. This tiny genome contains instructions from mitochondria, the little organelles that provide each cell with power. Just as regular genes can harbor mutations, so too can mitochondrial genes. But because the mitochondria are separate from the cell's nucleus, where the main genome lives, in principle, this makes it possible to replace mutated mitochondria without affecting the regular genome. Geneticist Shukrat Matalipov and his team have spent years working out how to do this. Hi, my name is Shukrat Matalipov, and I'm a professor at Oregon Health and Science University. Matalipov and his team have performed mitochondrial replacement in monkeys and healthy human eggs. The recipe is straightforward in principle. Remove the nucleus and preserve it. Then take a healthy egg and swap out its nuclear DNA for that of the patient. So we create kind of... uh, a completely new egg uh, with a restored mitochondrial DNA that will be healthy in this case. A woman with mitochondrial mutations could therefore have kids who are genetically her own and yet unaffected by the disease. But before the techniques are ready for the clinic, there's a few things left to do, like test how the procedure works in eggs from women who carry mitochondrial mutations. That's what Shukrat's latest study aimed for. I talked to him about what he and his team have been up to, so the latest uh, study was done uh, specifically with, with uh, patient eggs, meaning we recruited uh, volunteers, uh, families with children having a mitochondrial disease, and we recruited five families, and, and uh, so um, they agreed to, to donate the eggs for this procedure so we could study the clinical aspects of this mitochondrial replacement and how that would, would work in real life. Did the transfers work? Were you able to produce eggs and, and I suppose, later fertilized embryos that were free of diseased mitochondria? We fertilized now these eggs, and then we produced early pre-implantation stage embryos, which all carried uh, now donor mitochondria, and uh, the embryo development and, and other parameters that we usually look during in vitro fertilization treatments were pretty normal, so we've been very um, pleased with, with uh, these outcomes. We've actually seen um, a slowly return of this mutant mitochondria back to, to becoming, um, you know, dominant in, in, in the cells. And the way it, it happens is when we do the mitochondrial replacements, it's, it's never kind of 100% clean. 
So when we transfer nucleus, um, it carries a little bit its own mitochondria with it. And so this 1% of mother's mutant mitochondria usually is carried over. And uh, in most cases, it disappears. It's hard even to find it. But in very few cases, this 1% remaining mitochondria uh, slowly um, outcompetes, I guess, during the replication and it becomes um, a major uh, haplotype in, in cells, in embryonic stem cell lines. What do these results mean if, if these procedures were applied to creating children? Uh, of course, the danger is if this would happen uh, during normal uh, you know, embryo development, uh, and, and it means that the child born would still have a mutant mitochondria remaining, and then it may cause a disease again. We're still kind of looking into why it happens, and it seems like there is a way to, to prevent it by, by carefully matching uh, the donor mitochondria. So we would have to carefully screen uh, donor mitochondria and make sure that it matches. We know that um, these procedures have been attempted in Mexico, I believe. A, a fertility doctor used a procedure like this to try and prevent the transmission of a mitochondrial disease, and a child has been born. Is this a good idea to proceed with these procedures? Of course, you know, we've been working towards uh, developing this, this uh, treatment so that, that we can finally use it for, for patients. But at the same time, of course, there are so, so many still questions, uh, clinical questions remain. But I think the, the final uh, outcomes can be only measured once uh, uh, we, we carry on uh, clinical trials. So the, um, I don't think that the procedures are quite ready for clinics to take on. That was Shukrat Metalapov in Oregon. For more background on mitochondrial diseases, check out a recent nature video animation. Find it on youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. And just today, Wednesday the 30th of November, scientists advising the UK body responsible for fertility treatments, the HFEA, agreed with Metalopov. They advised that the HFEA should allow clinical use of mitochondrial donation in specific circumstances. Time now for this week's news chat and Chief News Editor Celeste Beaver joins us in the studio. Hi, Celeste. Hi, Adam. Results are in now from a big trial to test a treatment for Alzheimer's. Now, first, before we get to the actual results, how were they looking to treat Alzheimer's? The um, treatment was based on a leading theory for Alzheimer's, which posits that it's triggered by the build-up of a protein called amyloid that eventually causes plaques to form on the brain. And this particular drug, which is called a very difficult to pronounce, solanazumab, is an antibody that mops up amyloid protein from the blood and cerebrospinal fluid with the hope that that then impacts their formation of the plaques in the brain that actually are thought to trigger Alzheimer's. So that's the hope and the results are now in and... What are the findings? So this was a large trial in a couple of thousand people. They all had mild dementia caused by Alzheimer's and there was no significant cognitive benefit found from the drug. So all kinds of scientists, neuroscientists were watching this trial because it was seen as a major test of whether this theory um, was correct. And basically the trial was a flop and it didn't work. Obviously hugely disappointing to people hoping for a treatment for Alzheimer's. Also, very disappointing for people who potentially believe there's a link between this amyloid beta and Alzheimer's disease. Does that mean we can now rule out this link? 
No, it doesn't. So certainly disappointing. Everyone would love to have a treatment for Alzheimer's that works. And this does follow a long string of failures. However, there's still lots of reasons to think the theory itself is right. And the thing that scientists haven't quite sort of nailed yet is how to translate or exploit that theory to actually make a treatment. So there's several other trials that are ongoing, either using that same drug and some some of the trials are looking at preventing Alzheimer's rather than treating it so that, um, and giving it by giving it to people who have a genetic risk of uh, developing it later. There's also other drugs that also mop up or attack amyloid, but in different ways. Um, so there's some scientists who think maybe the drug didn't work, not because those people were in the wrong stage of Alzheimer's, but because uh, there's something about the way that the drug is actually acting that's particular to the drug that wasn't quite working rather than the hypothesis being flawed. So there is still a lot of activity and these trials are ongoing right now. So we should expect to have more results in the next few years. And one of the new drugs still being looked at is the drug aducanumab, which you would have heard about on the Nature podcast a couple of months ago. But as the search for Alzheimer's treatments continues, a new search is getting underway in the Antarctic. Yeah, that's right. So the Antarctic summer is just beginning, and that means scientists can flock to the uh, frozen continent. And this year, they're doing exploration of a totally different kind. And this is uh, part of a hunt to find the world's oldest ice. The, the sort of ultimate goal is to have a beautiful ice core um, that goes all the way down to ice that's over 1.5 million years old. And that is a few kilometres down. To, to pull out that core, which will tell us all kinds of things about the climate in the past and potentially help us make predictions about future climate, um, before they go to all the time and effort of extracting this core, they want to be really sure they're looking in the right place and that they've kind of optimised the site. And so this year marks this, the start of the use of this new kind of drill that um, is optimised for doing really fast reconnaissance of the ice to try and figure out how old it is, but not to actually extract the core, just to experiment in several places to then finally decide where they're going to do this big, long-sought kind of experiment. Why is getting this ice so important? How old's the oldest we have now, and why do we want to go beyond that? So the oldest ice core contains ice that's 800,000 years old, um, and that was uh, dug up in 2004. And the problem with that is it spans the end of the Holocene, but it is thought that before about a million years ago, the cycling between hot and cold periods happened every 40,000 years and now happens every 100,000 years. And the transition between the two is thought to have occurred in that other part of the Holocene that we don't have a really good ice core to represent. For the moment, we're not actually digging out this ancient ice. We're just looking for where to dig it out. Exactly. When, when might we actually get our hands on it? It's something that a lot of people want to do, which is good. So there's... Um, Many different countries are sending these reconnaissance drills out there and digging in different places. Um, the UK, France, Germany are all involved in, in various projects as well as China. And because they're all digging in different places, it would be nice if they pulled knowledge um, to try and do this together. So the um, international collaboration does say it could dig as soon as 2020. Um, they're hoping over the next two years to identify this ideal site and also talk about how they might all collaborate, potentially pool funding to do this. However, also interesting 
is that there is a Chinese team that is currently looking in a different part of Antarctica to where these speedy drills are originally initially going to go. And they are looking for an intact core right now. And it is possible that when they extract that core, it might happen to contain that oldest ice. And no one's really sure how likely that is. So in a way, this other effort could be gazumped if that were to happen. Although the scientists on the international team also working with China say even if that happened, they'd still want to dig another really old core because you don't just really want one. If you have a couple, you can compare them and make sure that whatever you find isn't some sort of anomaly. Thanks, Celeste. For more on those news stories, nature.com forward slash news. And that's all, folks. But there's a new science fiction short out this week. And if you've ever wondered about the downsides of travelling close to light speed, then this one's for you. Find it on your podcatcher on acast.com forward slash nature or on the Nature website. We found this month's story, Melissa, especially moving. Do send us your feedback and thoughts on this episode or the show in general, podcast at nature.com or search Nature Podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review if you're feeling wordy. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Noah Baker. The Nature Podcast is supported this week by Altmetric. Citations aren't everything you know. Altmetric can help you monitor all the different attention your work is getting. They believe that making your research visible is key to its success and can help build your professional profile. They track your favourite papers on a range of sources, including blogs, Twitter and news stories. Reddit, Facebook. Plus, you can add the Altmetric bookmarklet to your browser. When you visit any paper, click it and get all the details. I have become slightly addicted to the bookmarklet. Also, my new favourite word is bookmarklet. Try it out for yourself. Go to altmetric.it and drag the bookmarklet to the toolbar to get started. Bookmarklet.